This is the East Traumacast. Hi, welcome to Traumacast. We're here today to discuss acute kidney injury and contrast-induced nephropathy. Our guest speakers are Dr. Brad Dennis and Dr. Stephen Weisbord. I'm Michael Rudomsky from the Ohio Health Grant Medical Center in Columbus, Ohio. Our other moderators are Carrie Valdez and Jeremy Levin. If you wouldn't mind, please introducing yourselves and telling us a little bit about where you're from. Hi, guys. Carrie Valdez. Uh, hopefully you know me by now. However, I have changed. I am now over at Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. We'd also like to say thank you to Humanetics for their generous and unrestricted grant for the Online Education Committee. Grants like these allow us to bring you programs like the TraumaCast. You can check out all of our other online education at east.org. Hey, I'm Jeremy Levin. Uh, I am a new faculty at IU Methodist in Indianapolis and uh, looking forward to our discussion. Hi, I'm uh, Brad Dennis. I'm the Trauma Medical Director at Vanderbilt University uh, Medical Center. Uh, thank you guys for having me today. I'm Steve Weisbord. I'm a nephrologist at the VA Pittsburgh Healthcare System and at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for uh, joining us for today's discussion. Uh, today, we wanted to talk about contrast-induced nephropathy and how it relates to our trauma patients. So, Steve, where did this idea of contrast-induced nephropathy come from, and uh, how long has it been around? Yeah, so the first reported cases of acute kidney injury with contrast really over 50 years ago. So in the 1960s, 1970s, there were cases reported of acute kidney injury with contrast. At the time, they were seen with angiograms and with pilograms. What's been recognized since that time is that contrast administration, iodinated contrast administration in the setting of CT scans, angiograms, any kind of administration of contrast into the uh, vasculature can pose a risk for an acute decline in kidney function. Okay. And has this changed over the past uh, number of years between different agents that have been involved or has it always been the same type of iodinated agents? There are a number of things that have changed over time with contrast associated acute kidney injury. And I'll say first and foremost, I think the name has sort of changed, at least in some circles. So it was initially referred to as contrast induced nephropathy. That term has sort of fallen out of favor in the nephrology community where we're referring to cases of acute kidney injury as acute kidney injury, and in this case, contrast-induced acute kidney injury. And I think more specifically, many of us in the area of acute kidney injury really refer to it as contrast-associated acute kidney injury because of the recognition that many cases of acute kidney injury in the setting of contrast are likely multifactorial. In terms of other things that have changed over time, Um, I think there's been a recognition that the severity of the condition itself has probably become less, uh, well, it's become less severe over time in general. So the early cases that were reported, you know, many decades ago were typically characterized by, in many cases, larger, larger increases in serum creatinine with larger doses of intravascular dye administered. And early on, the contrast that was being used was referred to as high osmolal contrast or contrast that had osmolarities that were four, five, six times the osmolarity of the blood. That changed over time in the 1980s and 1990s, low osmolal contrast was being used. And despite the fact that it's referred to as low osmolal, it is in fact hyperosmolar to the blood. So osmolarities in the 800 milliosm area. So those agents were used through the 80s into the 90s. And in the 1990s, isoosmolal contrast was um, was introduced and, and the agent that was being used was iodixanol. And based on its name, you can assume that it is has an osmolality that is similar to that of the blood. So that's been the transition over time in terms of the type of agents that are used. So now in clinical practice, at least, at least in the developed world, it's, it's pretty much all low and isoosmolar contrast that's being used in, in, in the setting of CT scans and angiograms. The other thing that has changed over time is the volume of contrast that's being administered. So back you know, 40, 50 years ago, there were higher volumes of contrast And with research that's recognized that the volume of contrast appears to be uh, associated with 
an increased risk. So the higher the volume of contrast, the higher the risk. There has been there have been efforts to perform procedures, CT scans, angiograms with lower volumes of contrast. And so there's been a transition over the past, you know, 40, 50 plus years in, in multiple different aspects of the condition. And I think that that's changed sort of the, the picture, the clinical picture that we see when contrast is administered and we're considering its effect on the kidneys. Steve or Brad, can either of you give us a little history of maybe how we even thought of doing this? Because at some point we had never heard of contrast or used it. And then someone got the idea, let's inject this thing I could catch on an x-ray into someone's veins and arteries and, and then take a lot of fast pictures. How did, how did we get to that point? Uh, obviously, I wasn't practicing medicine back in, you know, in the 50s and 60s, but I think there was a recognition that, uh, you know, with the evolution of radiographic procedures, there was a recognition that the administration of iodinated contrast was important for diagnostic purposes, that uh, contrast would highlight things such as tumors and infections and assist in diagnosing those conditions to a greater degree than the imaging procedures without contrast. And that, that has evolved, obviously, not only in the, in the setting of you know, what type of contrast are used, but different contrasts for other procedures, for example, gadolinium-based contrast in, in, with MRIs. And I think that you know, there's been a recognition that in many cases, although certainly by no means all cases, in many cases, contrasted images provide important information that non-contrasted images can't. And uh, given how frequently these kinds of procedures are used, CT scans, angiograms, et cetera, are used, and how often intravenous contrast or intraarterial contrast is used in conjunction with them, the concept of contrast-associated acute kidney injury or the, the condition contrast-associated acute kidney injury has taken on added importance and has also added attention from, from clinicians who are ordering these tests and we're taking care of patients who, who have to undergo these tests and, and also taking care of patients after they receive contrast. And I'll just add, you know, in the setting of, of trauma and acute care surgery, obviously, you know, the, the addition of the intravenous uh, iodinated contrast really helps us to make you know, decisions about distinctions between, you know, the various solid organs and hollow viscous, you know, within the abdomen, uh, the, the chest, and even the soft tissues. You know, I think in trauma, we are able to visualize contrast extravasation significant for bleeding in EGS, identifying abscesses from other uh, soft tissue findings it has been really helpful in our, in our diagnostic abilities as well. So, so I think that's really where in the realm of trauma and acute care surgery, we're very dependent, I think, in our CT imaging having iodinated contrast. Steven, if you could kind of help me understand, what is the definition of contrast-associated acute kidney injury? Because as sure as the name has changed over time, I'm sure the definition has changed. And, and how do you parse that out of what is truly a contrast-associated acute kidney injury versus something that's a manifestation of the other problems for which the patient's getting a CAT scan for in the first place? So, you know, the, the, the broad definition is a decline in kidney function, typically within a couple of days after the intravascular administration of iodinated contrast. As I pointed out before, you know, the term used to be referred to as contrast-induced nephropathy, and it's changed terms now to contrast-induced acute kidney injury or contrast-associated acute kidney injury. Really, the way to think about the definition of you know, contrast-induced or contrast-associated acute kidney injury is the uh, standard K-DIGO definition of acute kidney injury. What used to be used as a definition in many clinical trials, and for that matter, in clinical practice, was an increase in the serum creatinine of at least 25% or 0.5 milligrams per deciliter, typically within one to four days after a procedure is performed with contrast. That definition has fallen out of favor primarily because the nephrology community has attempted to sort of consolidate around a single definition of acute kidney injury. And I think that for purposes of a definition, one can use an increase in the serum creatinine of 0.3 milligrams per deciliter, which is the serum creatinine threshold used by KDIGO, the, the Kidney Disease Improving Global Outcomes Organization that puts out guidelines. That's the a serum creatinine component of stage one AKI. And so for purposes of research and publications, one could use an increase in serum creatinine of 0.3 milligrams per deciliter 
typically within three plus days of contrast administration. Now, the problem with that definition is that in patients, I don't routinely take care of trauma patients, but I take care of patients in the ICU all the time. And patients in these kinds of circumstances, either trauma or ICU, or for that matter, even on the medical or surgical floors, they have fluctuating serum creatinine for all sorts of reasons. And so, you know, they may have a bump in their serum creatinine from, let's say, 1.1 to 1.4. That's simply related to starting a medication or being NPO or something along those lines. And so using a serum creatinine, uh, an increase in the serum creatinine of 0.3 milligrams per deciliter to define contrast-associated acute kidney injury, that is a definition that is going to encompass other processes. So it is difficult using that definition to distinguish the effect of contrast from, from something else. What I would say is that in this issue of you know contrast-induced versus contrast-associated is very important. And I think it's particularly important in the setting of trauma where you have people who are hypotensive, people who are bleeding, there are likely in those cases when contrast is administered, you know, several potential contributing factors to a decline in kidney function. And so I think, you know, rather than sort of pigeonholing into a, you know, a specific threshold increase in serum creatinine, the way I think about contrast associated AKI is acute kidney injury that, that characterized by a decline in kidney function, typically an increase in the you know, serum creatinine in most patients that occurs after contrast and maybe frequently in the context of, of other insults to the kidney. Well, I don't know. It's like at your institution, but I've met a couple of acute care surgeons who like to give vancomycin prophylax with Lovenox on a septic patient and then hit them with some contrast. So I'm not sure where we're getting our contrast-induced nephropathy from, right? <laughs> Um, maybe you could step back a bit and um, go over some pathophysiology. Like what's happening? Is it a toxin to the kidney? Is it just not cleared and causes injury? You talked about osmolality. Is it intraparenchymal hypertension? Like what makes this so bad? And why can't we just use some kind of different material if, if this keeps causing these problems? So that's a good question. So, you know, the pathophysiology, there have been studies that have looked at this and, and there are a series of potential mechanisms that are, that contribute to the decline in kidney function after contrast is administered. So the first thing is iodinated contrast is a vasoconstrictor. The place where that has the largest effect in the kidney is in the renal medulla, where the partial pressure of oxygen can drop, particularly in the various limbs of the nephron. What happens is that there is vasoconstriction to the uh, tubular epithelial cells, which line the, the renal tubules. And when you have vasoconstriction or decreased blood flow to the renal tubular epithelial cells, increased demand, there is the potential for ischemia of the renal tubular epithelial cells and the generation of acute tubular necrosis. The second factor that has been shown in some studies to cause uh, damage is after contrast is filtered in through the glomerulus and into the tubular lumen, it can actually have direct toxic effects on the tubular epithelial cells. Another factor that contributes to, to what we see under the microscope in these cases, which is acute tubular necrosis. And then lastly, what's been shown is that when iodinated contrast is administered, there's an increase in the generation of reactive oxygen species. And those have been shown to contribute to tubular epithelial damage. And that was really the basis behind that part of the mechanism for contrast-associated acute kidney injury was part of the hypothesis as to why the medication N-acetylcysteine was investigated as a potential preventive intervention because it is a oxygen uh, scavenger. The three real mechanisms that are believed to be contributing are vasoconstriction and a mismatch of oxygen delivery and demand in the, in the renal medulla, a uh, direct effect of contrast that's filtered at the glomerulus on the tubular epithelial cells, then lastly, generation of, of reactive oxygen species that cause added damage to the uh, renal epithelial cells. The other things to think about in terms of the pathophysiology that pretty well shown is that the high osmolar contrast agents were clearly more nephrotoxic than the low osmolar agents. The, the difference between the low osmolar and the isoosmolar uh, contrast agents 
really not borne out in clinical trials, but certainly osmolarity has an effect on, uh, on this at a certain point. When you get above a certain point, there's an increased risk. And there have been some studies that look, have looked at the viscosity of contrast agents and, and, and its potential effect. Does it cause slowing in the flow of urine in the, in the renal tubules? Um, you know, does higher viscous contrast do that? And so those two features of contrast have been the subject of various research um, attempts to understand how contrast causes damage to the kidneys and how we can manipulate the contrast formulation to try to lower the risk. Brad, from your perspective, have you ever appreciated a pure contrast-induced or associated acute injury as a separate entity from the other patient problems that you typically encounter in trauma and EGS? And do you think it matters? Like, does contrast-associated acute injury make a clinical difference to the surgeon treating hypotensive septic patient with Hinchy 4 diverticulitis or PERF-DU or, you know, they have bad liver injury? Yeah, good question. Thanks. Um, so I think the first point, you know, to, to kind of reemphasize uh, some of the things that Steve mentioned, you know, so since I've been in my clinical practice, you know, is sort of in this era of lower osmolal contrast mediums and, and the ISO osmolarities era. So, you know, having not really experienced those really high concentration uh, iodinated contrasts, you know, I've not seen any that I thought were necessarily a single, you know, Hey, they, everything else was totally normal, but they, you know, they got this hit of contrast and, and, and we see things change having said that. And that that's really the, the, I, part of what I think the, the genesis of the, the controversy about does contrast cause AK, does it not, you know, or is it, does it clinically matter is because you do have, you know, typically we're scanning people who have, you know, a number of risk factors going on at once, whether it's sepsis, hypovolemia, hemorrhage, you know, or they're, you know, getting antibiotics. So there's, it's really difficult to suss out. And I think that's what we've seen in these, in these meta-analyses as well, as well as the uh, propensity match studies is that it's just, it's very hard to separate that out as an isolated entity. And I think, you know, when you talk about study design, there's obviously some, probably some ethical questions about doing randomized trials on this population. So it would be hard for me to say that, yes, I I've seen it or, or even honestly know that I, that I've not seen it from a practicality standpoint or from a clinical standpoint, I think that, you know, really the question, obviously AKI is going to be a thing that's going to have a meaningful impact on a, on a, certainly an ICU patient's hospital course as it, depending on the severity, you know, of that AKI, but in the setting of, of hemorrhage or septic shock or, or surgical diagnosis, I think we have to weigh those, you know, those competing interests, you know, when we are making decisions about does this patient need contrast, um, you know, and so certainly for somebody who's hemorrhaging and we feel like, you know, a, a, an angiogram is, is going to be a life-saving intervention, I think that cost benefit is, is real easy for us. I think it's the ones where it's a little softer, you know, softer call appendicitis is, is probably a good example of this. Is that, is it worth the cost of, of the contrast? You know, again, that that's kind of a patient by patient decision. Uh, I will say in my practice, I, I probably tend to move more in favor of the CT scan rather than, than away from it, uh, unless it's severe, unless there's a number of risk factors that are sort of stacked against that patient. And so then, Brad, if you're going to get the CT scan, you're going to give the IV contrast for it? Or do you think that there's a role for getting dry run CT scans on, on our acute care surgery or EGS patients? That's a good question, too. I think for me, it's about, yeah, if I'm going to, obviously, if you're going to do a dry run and it's going to confound the picture and then you say, well, I really do need that contrast to scan. Now you've exposed them to two doses of radiation. And is, you know, what's the cost of that? And long-term, obviously we don't have a lot of, certainly want to minimize the radiation we give to people, but what's the long-term cost of it? I think for me, honestly, kind of talking about some of the pathophysiology, I really want to try to maintain urine output in these people. So I want to be resuscitating them either before, after, or during giving, you know, their contrast load so that I can kind of those nephrons in the renal tubules as quickly as I can at that contrast. If I do feel like there's somebody who are either under resuscitated or at particular risk for AKI. So I, that, that's sort of my uh, kind of thought process on those patients. Then Steve, when we have made that decision in the ICU uh, or with our trauma patients to give them a CTE scan with IV contrast, is there anything that we can do to help minimize that associated kidney injury? The answer to that question is yes. The one intervention that has been at least reasonably shown to prevent uh, or to minimize the risk is the administration of isotonic fluid. And I say that 
half-heartedly because there have not been good clinical trials that have compared the administration of fluid to no fluid. There was one small trial a couple of decades ago, and I mean small, that was stopped after, I don't even remember how many, but it was a small number of patients were enrolled because they found much higher rates of acute kidney injury in the patients who didn't receive any fluid compared to I compared to the patients who received IV fluid. But there have been no really good studies, uh, large-scale, adequately powered clinical trials that have looked at the question of whether IV fluids uh, are effective for the prevention of contrast-associated AKI. That said, there's a lot of plausibility to why they would potentially be effective. There are some suggestions from studies that have, for example, compared isotonic fluid to hypotonic fluid with a benefit to the isotonic fluid group that suggests that expanding the intravascular volume uh, is protective. And there are physiologic reasons why someone who is volume depleted would have a harder time with the administration of contrast and the potential effects of vasoconstriction, et cetera, and risk for ischemia of the tubular epithelial cells. So what I would say is that the one intervention that, that is recommended in clinical guidelines is the administration of isotonic fluid. We answered the question, I think, fairly definitively of the saline bicarbonate comparison. You know, there were a number of years there where there were trials that, that compared saline and bicarbonate and the the data were mixed and then there were meta-analyses. At one point, there were more meta-analyses than clinical trials on this, you know, which didn't advance patients' health, advanced some people's, you know, professional careers, but not their, not patients' health. You know, we did a stu- we did the largest study of this and we showed that there's no difference in terms of the incidence of acute kidney injury or 90-day severe kidney-related adverse outcomes comparing saline to isotonic saline to isotonic bicarbonate. That was in the setting of angiography. The presumption is that with CT scan, it's the same, that that, that would be the same, you know, the same findings would be shown. And so isotonic saline or isotonic bicarbonate, with isotonic bicarbonate, there's a little bit more expense and there's a small risk for compounding errors and a very small risk for hypokalemia or hypocalcemia. Um, Those are sort of very small risks. And, And so for all intents and purposes, for most patients, there's going to be comparability between isotonic saline and isotonic bicarbonate. What's not known is what the most effective rate and the most effective volume and the most effective duration are using isotonic fluids. There's pretty good data that short courses of fluid in higher volumes is probably comparable to longer duration fluids. Um, and certainly in many cases, it's much more convenient. In some cases, it's required. I mean, in the setting of trauma, you obviously can't say, well, we'll intervene on this patient and, you know, in 12 hours, let's give them fluids before we, you know, before we know what's going on. But there are other settings in which short durations of fluid before and even relatively short durations after in higher volumes that would then would be given over an extended period of time appear to be effective. And so, what I do is in patients who I know are at increased risk, who are going to go uh, undergo procedures with intravascular contrast, and I want to implement something to try to minimize that risk, um, I try to volume expand them with typically with isotonic saline and in select circumstances, isotonic bicarbonate. What about in the trauma world, we see a lot of patients that have acute kidney injury or acute renal failure and then are on CRRT, then progress to dialysis. How do we handle it in that situation? So if you have somebody who has got acute kidney injury, who's on CRRT or intermittent hemodialysis or one of the variations of the of renal replacement therapy, you're talking about a patient who is for in most instances, that person has developed dialysis requiring AKI. So in those patients, is there, certainly for someone who's on CRRT, I'm usually not giving them fluids back. One of the reasons they're on CRRT is because they're hemodynamically unstable and I want to pull fluid off. So I'm usually, you know, in someone like that who needs a CT scan, the decision is whether, you know, do they need the CT scan or not? If they need the CT scan with contrast, then give it. I, I may not necessarily pull a bunch of fluid off right after the CT scan, but there's no data to support that approach. Someone's on intermittent hemodialysis, it's sort of the same thing. I mean, you can 
you know, there's a theoretical risk that in certainly with someone who's got AKI, if you add contrast on top of their AKI, it theoretically could, you know, could worsen the damage to the kidney. I don't know that there's good data for giving fluids in somebody who is dialysis dependent, be it intermittent or intermittent dialysis or CRT. So I guess in select circumstances, you might want to try to keep them on the wetter side, so to speak. But in those patients, I don't typically, you know, say, let's give, you know, let's give some volume before and after the procedure. Steve, I'm going to stay on this topic for a second. I feel like you might have just touched the third rail of conflict between a nephrologist and an intensivist. At least the way I put it in my mind, if they've already got end-stage renal disease, so they are someone who's already dialysis dependent pre-hospital, then it doesn't really make much of a difference what we do with contrast or not. The kidneys are gone and they're not coming back. Healthy kidneys, great, give them contrast, they're probably fine. But someone who's got kidney injury to the degree that they are now requiring in-hospital renal replacement therapy, whether intermittent or continuous, that you should never give contrast, that that is like death's door, that you have the sickle in hand and you're wiping out that last nephron and not giving them a chance to get their kidneys back. Is that an overreach or an overstatement? Because it feels that way clinically. Yeah, I think what you're getting into is sort of the elephant in the room with contrast associated acute kidney injury. And, and that is this sort of you know ongoing debate of, is this really an entity? Is it something that we need to be concerned about? How should we be approaching patients who need contrast? Should we be overly concerned with the administration of contrast? And uh, I think that there, there has been a big shift in un, our understanding of contrast-associated AKI. You know, most contrast-associated AKI, certainly in outpatient setting, is characterized by small increments in serum creatinine that resolve and may not have any longer-term implications in most patients. And so the question of should we be giving contrast to these patients who come into the hospital who have, you know, let's say some degree of AKI already or have multiple risk factors for, you know, severe AKI. And I think that it's really important to recognize that we not sort of move to the, we can't give anything that's going to be harmful to the patient. What's been shown in the cardiology literature to a much lesser extent in the radiology literature and even in the ICU literature is that providers frequently do not do procedures with contrast in patients who have an acute indication or have an indication, a clear clinical indication for that procedure. And that decision is likely based on the fact that they don't want to take the risk of causing acute kidney injury. Our group is doing research into this in, into this exact subject, but the, the best example is with the cardiology folks. You know, I love cardiologists. My brother's a cardiologist and I love him dearly, um, but I, I think that the cardiology literature has basically shown us what can go awry with this whole issue of contrast-associated AKI. So there are a number of studies, and I'm talking about a few dozen studies that have shown that patients who present to the hospital with acute coronary syndrome, including ST elevation MI, that patients with chronic kidney disease who present to the hospital with those, with those conditions, including, as I said, ST elevation MI, are considerably less likely to undergo catheterization and percutaneous intervention and even bypass surgery after, uh, after an angiogram than patients without chronic kidney disease. And that includes studies that have done propensity score matching for the likelihood of uh, receiving contrast, and, et cetera. And, and they, they're consistent. They're consistent. I mean, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of thousands of patients in multiple studies where patients with chronic kidney disease are as much as essentially 50% less likely to receive contrast in those settings. And what's also been shown in some of these studies is that patients with chronic kidney disease who get the procedure done, who get the cath and get, get the PCI, actually have much lower mortality. And this has actually been dubbed in the, in the nephrology world, uh, this, this phenomenon has been called renalism, where we're actually discriminating against, against patients with chronic kidney disease by not doing procedures that are clinically indicated because of fear of adverse outcomes, specifically contrast-associated AKI. This is a phenomenon that does occur, and it's not necessarily just restricted to the cardiology community. I mean, I see it regularly in clinical practice where I will get called to say, you know, can you see this patient? We're trying to decide whether to do 
you know, this procedure on this patient. And it is clear from the get-go that the procedure is clearly indicated. And the patient is far better off getting the procedure done, taking a small risk for, you know, contrast-associated AKI. In most patients, contrast-associated AKI is mild. Yes, in, you know, in the patients that we're talking about here, trauma patients, ICU patients, there are multiple other factors. And you don't want to be the person who makes the decision that is going to tip that person over to, you know, uh, irretrievable or irreversible acute kidney injury and a life on dialysis. But I think that it is important to recognize that contrast in most of these patients, um, even in the trauma patient who's hypotensive, may have sepsis or, or, you know, is bleeding, contrast is going to be a minor contributor unless you're using a lot of contrast. Those other factors, hypotension, sepsis, et cetera, those are going to be much, much stronger drivers of the acute kidney injury if the patient develops it. And I think in most of these cases, when there is a clinical indication for a procedure um, that involves contrast, it is in the best interest of the patient to receive the procedure than to not undergo the procedure out of fear that contrast might contribute to, you know, potential worsening of acute kidney injury. That's been my clinical experience. That's been my, my interpretation of the research um, that's been done on this subject. Um, and I think it's in the best interest of patients also um, that we not overblow the risk of contrast to, you know, to somebody's acute kidney injury. Rod, kind of along the same lines, often what we do with trauma and acute care surgeons, we're not typically doing contrast to procedures ourselves, but that decision for the inpatient in the ICU that's peridialysis or on CRT and deciding I need a, a contrasted scanner versus not, how do you navigate that decision process and do their risk benefit kind of ratio for the potential kidney injury versus the benefits of the scan? Yeah. So this is, Steve actually just touched on my exact, you know, thought process, or I don't want to put that last straw on the back of that, you know, that person's kidney and like push them down the path of, of irretrievable kidney injury or, or failure in that acute setting. You know, it, it's really easy to me. I think I've, if they're dying, if there's, you know, they're heading down this path where that's going to be a clear benefit to us, that's the easy patient. And, and I, I agree, like we're going to do the scan and we'll, we'll deal with the consequences of that, you know, down the road. It's those people that are, that are kind of that long-term or longer term ICU patient. And you've probably been in their abdomen a few times, maybe you've already put a drain in and, and you're, you know, now their white counts back up and their fever starting to creep up. And you're saying, is there another abscess or maybe it's pneumonia or maybe, it, you know, you've got a couple of different diagnostic dilemmas that you're, or uh, that you're sorting through. Those are the people that I really, um, I really struggle with is the contrast load worth, you know, that, that hit to the kidneys. And so that's honestly, you know, there's a couple things that I look at, um, like I said, is how, how sure am I of what, you know, where I think the the problem is and, and thus will the CT scan really provide that diagnostic benefit? Do I have alternative means to obtain that information without using contrast that are going to provide, that are going to be just as informative or, or close to as informative? What's their volume status? We talked about that a few times that I think, you know, making sure that they do have adequate intravascular volume is important. And then in the end, you know, I'm going to talk to the nephrologist if I'm unsure. And like, we'll have that conversation about like how how significant do we think their chances or their kidney disease is? How significant do we think what, what we're looking for? How likely is it that it's there? And do we think that the risks of the contrast are worth it? And it just depends on the scenario. Sometimes it is and, we, and we'll do it. And then sometimes it's not. And we kind of run down these, check off the other things on our list as our, of our possible diagnosis. And then we're left kind of with this one thing. And then, you know, hopefully we're in a little better spot and can afford to give the contrast. And Stephen, what are your thoughts on is contrast associated acute kidney injury? Is that as an entity itself injurious to the patient or is it more of the canary in the coal mine? Meaning it's, it's indicative that the patient is susceptible for bad things happening to them. And we're just seeing that they're in like a, a fickle physiologic state or they're very easily prone to being you know harmed in some way. Yeah, I think that you know significant contrast associated AKI where you have a, you know, a, a notable increase in the serum creatinine, that's likely to be clinically consequential. You know, th there's data that acute kidney, in there's good data that acute kidney injury is, is you know, strongly associated with long-term risk for chronic kidney disease. What I think is less clear is 
if you give contrast and the person has a small bump in their serum creatinine that returns back to baseline within, you know, a short period of time, you know, is that really a clinically consequential event? And I, I don't know that in many patients it necessarily is. And in some cases it, it, it is, but I don't know that, you know, that that is necessarily clinically consequential in many patients. We have some data from a recent study that suggests that those many of those patients who have that small increase in serum creatinine, that it may in fact be more of a hemodynamic effect and, and there may not necessarily be real damage to the, to the renal parenchyma. And yes, there are studies associating small changes in serum creatinine with longer-term risks of you know, serious adverse outcomes. Those are associational studies. I'm not sure we've established causality. Certainly, the patient who develops more severe acute kidney injury from contrast, most of those patients are going to be the, the patient that you just described or the, the, the sort of uh, type of patient that you just described who's just more susceptible to injury. They're, you know, they're sicker, typically. They have more hemodynamic instability. Their renal reserve may not be as good. Um, and so I think that those are the kinds of patients that you know, a greater risk for more, more significant damage from contrast to their kidneys, more significant acute kidney injury, more severe acute kidney injury. And so I think that the approach to these patients, it's, you know, we, we sometimes don't know what the right thing to do is. I, I agree with Brad that, you know, what I do is when I'm consulted on these, I, you know, I sit down and I speak to the person who's consulting the ICU doc or, or the surgeon, whoever it may be. And I say, okay, well, you know, what are we trying to rule out here? What are we trying to rule in? And, um, you know, what are uh, the consequences? Are there alternatives that don't use, don't use ionated contrast that we can try? If there are not alternatives that would give comparable information, you know, how important is the information? I mean, if it's going to be, you know, very significant, it's going to make, you know, big, a big difference in terms of decisions that are being made and directions that the care is going. Then I say, look, you know, these are the potential risks and these are the potential benefits. I lay that out for the patient. If the patient's not able to, you know, is intubated or, or not able to communicate, then I try to sit down and mention, you know, talk to the family about it and say, look, we, you know, there, there's a risk on both sides to doing the procedure and not doing the procedure. Here's what the risks are. Here's what the potential benefits are, you know, and, and we want you to understand that. And this is what we're thinking of doing, but we want you to be aware of, you know, what the decision is, you know, what, what that the decision needs to be sort of a collective one. But I think that it is focusing on those, you know, that, that those patients who are more sort of tenuous clinically, hemodynamically unstable, have some AKI to begin with. Um, those are the ones that, you know, this is most applicable to. I really like that term renalism. Um, and I feel like that's very specific to contrast or contrast associated kidney injury, because when I'm starting a patient on Vancanzosin or in the emergency department or in the ICU, you know, I, I'm realizing that, yeah, it's nephrotoxic, but it, I wouldn't let it change my therapy significantly. Uh, Brad, does it, do you find that you change your th other therapies because of their AKI? So for example, the antibiotics that you're starting and such? Uh, so I will say I don't necessarily shy away from you know, things like vancomycin. Now we're obviously going to adjust the dose and, and probably, I'm probably going to ask more questions, you know, uh, every day about, you know, are we monitoring those troughs? How close are our troughs to where we, you know, where we want to be or our peaks, you know, for that matter, make sure we're clearing or not having, you know, build up. Um, but no, I, I, it doesn't necessarily change my, my selection. Um, but, and so I guess you're probably right in terms of, I do think about it a lot more in the, in the setting of IV contrast rather than some of the other known, you know, potential nephrotoxins. And Brad, if you could highlight for any of our really junior listeners, the difference, we're using some terms interchangeably, but could you highlight the difference between something that is renally toxic and something that is renally cleared? And how that makes a difference when they've got some acute kidney injury. Yeah, sure. Good point. Yeah. So the, I mean, certainly, you know, nephrotoxic or renal toxic, you know, medications um, are, are ones that are going to cause direct tox toxicity to the, uh, to the nephrons. And, and, you know, Steve highlighted uh, some of the ways that the contrast 
um, can be potentially toxic uh, to the kidneys, um, but also just you know uh, the way that they interact and um, as opposed to renal clearance, which is that they are metabolized and then cleared through the kidneys. And those are going to be, you know, we're going to see buildup in the serum um, if, if the kidneys are impaired and are not clearing at the, uh, um, at the rate that we, you know, at, they do in their normal. I'm going to throw another question out to Brad. So as the trauma medical director, um, do you have, at your institution, have you set up guidelines so that all of your partners and all the trauma surgeons are generally taking the same approach in the trauma bay? Because these will be scenarios a little different than what Steve described. We may not have time to talk to the patient or time to talk to the family and, and go through the risks and benefits, right? That, that is kind of put on us in a trauma bay scenario. Do you have guidelines? Should there be guidelines? Should all trauma centers have their own kind of institutional norms and all be practicing the same way? Or should it be a case-by-case, provider-by-provider decision? Um, So I don't think, I don't, we don't don't have written guidelines um, about the administration of IV contrast for our you know, level one, level two uh, trauma activations. But I will say that our practice is pretty standardized um, across our, our group and our fellows um, in that if if this person has met physiologic criteria to be uh, a level one or a level two trauma activation, then, then they're going to, we feel that that risk of um, injury is high enough that we're going to give those people IV contrast. Um, and, you know, if they're a lower level um, of trauma activation, then, you know, we'll be more, we'll have the opportunity to check their labs and to sort of have those conversations with them about what's been their, you know, previous history, but, you know, with, the interest of rapid diagnosis of people, people who are potentially, you know, decompensated or decompensating, we've, you know, we push forward with IV contrast for our CT scans in that setting. Now, should we be doing that? You know, our TQIP data suggests that, that AKI, you know, we're a low outlier for AKI. So I, I would suggest we're not piling up dead kidneys outside our, <laughs> outside our trauma unit, but um, you know, so, so we're doing something right. I, I, I like to think that it's a good resuscitation that plays a significant role in that as well, you know, and, and keeping that volume set or restoring that circulating volume um, as quickly and getting hemorrhage control as quickly as we can. So Steve, when we have a 85 year old frail little old lady come down that come into the trauma bay that fell down four steps or five steps, should we be more cautious about exposing her to contrast? I mean, I think I'd always go back to the, you know, concept of you know, is, is contrast needed for me to make an appropriate diagnosis and, and to treat this patient appropriately? I think, you know, in that scenario, the one thing that I think can be understandably misunderstood is that if you take an 85-year-old, you know, quote-unquote little old lady, and you check labs when they roll through the door and the creatinine is 1.1 and, you know, the, the they weigh you know, a hundred pounds soaking wet and they're Caucasian, the serum creatinine coming back at 1.1 will be in all likelihood within the normal range of the lab, but will reflect pretty significant decrement in kidney function. And so, you know, normal serum creatinine levels, particularly in older women, can be misleading. And even in younger women for that matter. Um, And sometimes in men, but look at the EGFR that's reported because some people will just quickly look at the serum creatinine and say, oh, the creatinine is 1.1. They're good to go. We have no risk at all. And the likelihood is that, you know, again, if, if that person is, doesn't have hemodynamic instability and is given some fluids that they're not going to experience severe acute kidney injury if they just get contrast in that, in that setting. Now, uh, you know, you have to balance that obviously with, you know, what, what information do you want from the procedure? I mean, if the, if the information is needed to treat the patient, you give the patient fluids, volume expand them as best you can in that context, depending on, you know, what, is it a trauma patient? Is it not a trauma patient? How quickly do you need this information? Volume expand the patient and, and do the procedure if it's clinically indicated. Um, with that one caveat being that, you know, look, look at what the reported EGFR is for the serum creatinines, because that is a common mistake that people will just quickly look at the serum creatinine and say it's in the normal range. This person doesn't have chronic kidney disease. So I'm, I'm, you don't have to worry about this at all. And you may not have to worry about it, but it's something that you may want to think about in terms of, you know, using volume expansive therapies to, to try to minimize risk. 
Steve, can you highlight some other areas we need to think about? Three broad categories that come to mind. Age. So is there a difference between a 25-year-old kidney and a 55-year-old kidney and a 95-year-old kidney if the GFRs are the same amongst all three patients? Is there a difference between men and women, all other things being considered equal? And is there a difference between different races and ethnicities? You had emphasized in our last patient if she was Caucasian, uh, if you can kind of highlight some of the differences that we'll see depending on where, you know, your ethnical lineage comes from. Yeah. So what I would say is, you know, good question. So with regard to age, there probably is not much difference in risk. If the GFRs are reported out as being, you know, exactly the same, there probably isn't much difference in risk. There's no good data that there, you know, is a notably higher risk in somebody who's, you know, 95 and 25 if they have identical eGFRs. Now, the likelihood is that 95-year-old has got some underlying damage to their kidneys by virtue of their age. So theoretically, you know, theoretically, one would think that the risk would be higher. I'm not aware of any significant data that, that confirms that. I, I think it's something to think about, but I, I wouldn't overthink it. In terms of gender, there, I believe, have been some studies that suggest that women are higher risk than men. I don't believe that that's really been established, and I certainly don't consider it in my clinical practice. So, I, I, you know, for all intents and purposes, I don't think there's good data that there's a differential risk for contrast-associated acute kidney injury between men and women. The last question is, is an interesting one, not because there really is any known risk, differential between, say, African-Americans and Caucasians and Hispanics, et cetera, but rather because there's going to now be a movement to using an EGFR equation that, that no longer uses race. In fact, that was just published in the New England Journal of Medicine yesterday. So there is going to be a new EGFR equation that should be adopted by labs that is going to eliminate the race component. And that has been validated as being accurate in terms of predicting the estimated GFR. You know, that will be a change relative to how we think about eGFR in patients of various races and ethnicities. I don't think that there's any good evidence that, that there's a differential risk for contrast-associated AKI based solely on race or ethnicity. There's no data that I'm aware of that that's the case. And, and in my mind, no reason there necessarily would be any difference. Most of our conversation here is centered around the intravenous use of contrast. You did talk briefly uh, about cardiology and using intraarterial contrast in that setting, but has there ever been shown to be a difference between intravenous and the intraarterial administration in that effect on the kidney? There have been no good head-to-head trials, in part because it's hard to randomize patients to intravenous versus intraarterial. I mean, if someone needs an angiogram, they need an angiogram. If they need a CT scan, they need a CT scan. So what we know has been extrapolated from studies that have looked at rates in patients undergoing angiograms and undergoing CT scans. And I think it's generally believed, and there's some data to support this, that the risk is a bit higher in patients undergoing angiograms than with CT scans. There are differential recommendations by some for the prevention, use of preventive interventions, namely fluids, in terms of what the EGFR is based on whether the person is undergoing a CT scan or an angiogram, with the higher risk being in, in, in patients undergoing angiograms. There are some people who don't believe that with an EGFR more than 30 and the patient undergoing non-emergent CT scans, that there's necessarily much risk. I tend to use a little bit higher EGFR in those patients. What's not been shown is whether these differences across procedure types is related to the procedure type and where the contrast is going, or whether it's the patient population that differs between the the CT scan patient population versus the angiogram population, whether there are differences in underlying comorbidities that would explain, and their clinical presentations that would explain differences in rates of acute kidney injury. Thank you very much. Now, there's been a lot of debate, I guess, and, and we've highlighted a lot of the talking points, I think, over the past number of years uh, that people have used that center around whether or not this whole idea of contrast-induced acute kidney injury uh, exists even. And how do you uh, address that? Because even in just recent literature, a lot of the studies have not borne out uh, significant outcomes differences. Yeah, good question. I mean, this is, you know, this is a subject that's 
some of it has derived from studies in the radiology literature that compared rates of acute kidney injury in large patient populations, these are all retrospective observational studies, that compared rates of acute kidney injury in patients who underwent CT scan with contrast versus CT scan without contrast, and they did propensity matching or covariate adjustment and, and, or both, and showed that the rates of AKI were comparable in the two groups. By virtue of that, you know, conclusion is that contrast may not cause acute kidney injury. I have a couple thoughts about these studies. I, you know, so the, the first one is that the contrast-associated acute kidney injury exists. I mean, you know, I think most people who are taking care of patients, following patients on the wards or, you know, in the ICU, et cetera, have seen patients who've gotten contrast and their kidney function has declined. There's a reasonable debate about whether small increments in serum creatinine after contrast, whether those are clinically significant. But I, I don't think there should be any real debate that there are patients who have developed acute kidney injury after receiving contrast, and most of those patients typically have other potential contributors to the acute kidney injury. What I, I think is problematic with these studies that have sort of generated this discussion of does contrast-associated acute kidney injury exist is that, number one, these are most of these studies are retrospective observation, they're observational, they're retrospective, and you can't fully control for all the potential co, you know, covariates or potential confounders. The, the second thing is that some of these studies have actually suggested higher rates of AKI in patients who didn't receive contrast, statistically significantly higher rates of acute kidney injury in patients who didn't receive contrast, which begs the question is, is it reasonable to think that contrast is nephroprotective? Obviously, it isn't nephroprotective. So what's the explanation for this? The explanation for this is these studies are hampered by uh, indication bias. So providers who are looking at patients who are at higher risk for acute kidney injury from contrast are more likely to not use it. And those patients may have may develop acute kidney injury at a higher rate than lower risk patients who get contrast. And there's no way in an observational study that's used, that uses retrospective data to be able to overcome that bias. And so I don't think it's healthy to say contrast-associated acute kidney injury doesn't exist. But by the same token, I think it, it is important to recognize that these procedures should be performed when they're clinically indicated with contrast. Um, and we should use preventive interventions in patients at high risk and not overblow the risk for acute kidney injury with contrast to the, to the extent that it harms patients by us not performing indicated studies. Um, all right. One last question from, from me. Um, is there any impact on any type of PO contrast? I don't think that there is, but Epic will give me my warning all the time about the most recent creatinine clearance or EGFR when I want to do PO contrast, I want to kill the myth right now. Is there any reason we shouldn't ever give PO contrast? No. PO contrast is not a risk factor for acute kidney injury. Okay. Same thing with rectal. I'm not kidding you. I've been asked. I've been called. <laughs> rectal contrast, same thing. Does nope. not go to the kidneys. No data that I'm aware of that there's a risk. Y'all heard it here first. Uh, thank you very much, both of you guys. A really uh, stimulating discussion. I really enjoyed it. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast brought to you by the East Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.